0: We are in Acts chapter 21, verses 37 through chapter 22. We'll get through about verse 6 this morning. So Acts 21, if you'll open to that section of Scripture. Acts twenty-one thirty-seven through 22, uh, verse 6. We'll uh, study that section of Scripture this morning together. Let's bow together in prayer and we'll study the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before You, we are thankful for uh, this privilege to be together with Your people, to be able to minister together, to minister through the way uh, we pray for each other and uh, care for each other's needs, to minister by our fellowship with one another, to minister through teaching Your Word both here in the auditorium as well as in the greenhouse. We thank you, Lord, for those who give their time to serving you on these Sunday mornings. We thank you that we have your magnificent word to share with those around us. We thank you that it's mighty and it's powerful. And it has the power to change our lives and the lives of the people around us. We ask you to help us to listen, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and the desire to incorporate your word into our lives and follow you all of our lives. Thank you for salvation which you offer to us fully and freely by simply putting our trust in your son Jesus. Certainly not in ourselves, For all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before you. But thank you that we can come to your son. We can put our trust in him. And we can pass from death to life. And become a part of your family. And have eternal life. Abundant living now and life with you forever. There's even one in the first service or this service today, Father, who has never trusted Your Son as Savior. I pray that they would do that this day. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Guide us in our study of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our section of Scripture, chapter 21, verse 37, which actually stretches through verse 29 ultimately, but we won't be going that far today, But this section of Scripture, the scene that it describes, would almost be comical if it were not that Paul's life is on the line in this section of Scripture. Uh, We have a charge, a false charge made against Paul in chapter 21, verse 28, where we read, well, to get the context, we look at verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. Well, that was a lie. That wasn't true. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. That wasn't true either. So there's a false charge made against Paul. It results, in verse 30, in chaos. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. They seized Paul and dragged him from the temple. It's followed by Paul's arrest in verse 33. The Roman commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So we have the false charge, we have chaos, we have the arrest. And then almost comically, verse 35 tells us that the scene got so bad, the danger to Paul so great, that in verse 35, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. Now can you picture this? They had to lift him up on their shoulders. The picture I get of that is a football game and the way the coach is put on the shoulders of the players sometimes after the game. Well, this is a very different scene, but that's where Paul is. He's placed on the shoulders of the soldiers to keep them away from the crowd who want him what? Dead. They want him dead. And so, there's a false charge, there's chaos, there's Paul's arrest, he's carried by the soldiers... And then verse 36, there's the call for Paul's life. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Away with him. That was a call for Paul's death. So, in one sense, the scene would almost be comical if it weren't for the seriousness, if it weren't for the fact that they want Paul dead. Well, that's where we pick up the story this morning. Now, If it were you or me, perhaps at this point, on the shoulders of soldiers being carried away from the temple, we might say, fellas, get me out of here as quickly as you can. Just get me away from here. Not Paul. As we're going to see in today's passage, he asks for the opportunity to speak to the crowd. Can you imagine that? They want him dead. And instead of asking to get out of the situation, Paul says to the commander and to the Roman soldiers, I would like to speak to this bloodthirsty crowd that wants my life. Such is the heart of Paul. Such is the heart of Paul, and we see his heart through this whole section. They want to murder Paul. Paul knew that they could carry it out too. Why did he know that? Because he had sat there in agreement with the murder of Stephen some 20 years earlier. He had sat there giving approval to the murder of Stephen. He knew the power of that crowd. He knew that crowd could get their way. He knew that crowd could kill him. He's got soldiers protecting him. But what he wants is to speak to the crowd. Why is that? Well, the text doesn't spell it out for us. I think though, from knowing Paul's life and from knowing Paul's heart, we can make some assumptions about what could cause him to want to address the crowd instead of flee the crowd. For one thing... Paul knew their need. He knew their need. He knew that they were lost and dying and going to a Christless eternity, and he knew their need, and that prompted him to want to speak to them rather than flee the situation. After all, wasn't that what his life was all about? Wasn't, didn't that become the center of his life, sharing his faith in Jesus Christ, the one he had persecuted his followers, and then himself come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knew the need of the crowd. I think it's important that you and I keep in mind the need of the people around us. The people that we work with. The people in our neighborhoods. The people we encounter at the store. People in our own families. What could cause him to want to address this crowd instead of flee it? He knew their need. But the second thing I think is that we can see is that he knew God's provision. He knew God's provision. He knew that God had a way to make their lives right. He knew that God had a way to make their lives right. He knew the heart of God. So he knew their need, recognized their need, but he also knew their hearts. One writer said, Paul came to Jerusalem with one consuming passion, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with his countrymen, a less Christ-obsessed man would be yelling, please get me to the ER. Paul was asking, please let me speak to the people. Don't you like that description of Paul? Paul, a Christ-obsessed man. Would you mind being called that, gentlemen? Or would you like to be called a christ Obsessed man. How about ladies? Would you like to be called a Christ-obsessed woman? I think that would be such an honorific title, such an honor to be called Christ-obsessed. As the writer says, a less Christ-obsessed man would yell, Get me out of here. But Paul instead says, Let me speak to the people. Paul knew their need, he knew God's heart and God's provision. He knew that God could take the worst of men. Liars, thieves, murderers, idolaters, adulterers. He could take the worst of men and make them truly righteous. Isn't that an amazing thing? To exchange our sin for His righteousness. But Paul also knew the other side of the coin. He knew that God could take the best of men, and by that I mean those who are righteous in their own eyes and give them true righteousness. So, why, Paul? Why would you not flee this situation? One more thing. I think the answer to why is because Paul knew that without Christ, men and women and boys and girls We're going to an eternity of torment and pain without Christ. Now the major part of chapter, the remainder of chapter 21 and chapter 22 is Paul's testimony. The story of his conversion. The story of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. That's the major part of this. But I want us to see something important here. Paul was not just giving a recitation, recitation of his testimony or his conversion, but he was trying to show, and I think Luke was trying to show through recording this incident, he was trying to show that Paul had been divinely directed. Paul was following God's plan for his life. If Paul is following God's plan for his life, as he was, then to oppose Paul is to oppose whom? God. To oppose Paul is to oppose God. And I think that's some of what Luke is trying to do in this passage. Well, verse 37, we pick it up there. Chris finished at verse 36 last week. In verse 37 we read, As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. In other words, the Roman commander was surprised that Paul spoke Greek. And the reason he was surprised is because not only was Paul falsely accused about having a Gentile in the temple, not only was Paul falsely accused about his teaching, but this Roman commander falsely understands who Paul is. He believes he is an Egyptian Jewish insurrectionist and so he's surprised that Paul can speak Greek do you speak Greek he replied aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago This was referring back to an event that happened in A.D. 54, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. There was an Egyptian Jew, an insurrectionist, who claimed to be a prophet, who claimed to be a second Moses. Now, why would he do that? Do you remember what Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18.15? It's an important promise. You ought to have it written somewhere in your Bible. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said that God would send a prophet just like him. God would send a prophet just like him. Do you remember when Jesus said to His disciples, who do men say I am? Do you remember what one of their answers was? Some say, you are the prophet. What, he's refer- what they're referring to is Moses prediction that there would be prophecy that there would be a prophet like him well this egyptian terrorist this egyptian insurrectionist claimed to be a second moses fulfilling deuteronomy 18:15 he led 4000 followers into the wilderness and then he disappeared he claimed that he led them to the mount of olives first then into the wilderness He he claimed that the walls of Jerusalem would collapse. But instead of that happening, he disappeared. And the 4,000 insurrectionists, by the way, who are literally dagger men, that's what the term means. It's not translated that way in your NIV. They're called terrorists. But the Greek word means somebody who straps a dagger to their side, hidden under their cloak. And what they would do is they would get close to pro-Roman Jews and Romans and they would slip the dagger out and put them to death. That's, what they, that's who we're referring to here. Well, their leader, this Egyptian Jew claiming to be the second Moses, their leader disappears and leaves his followers to be cut to ribbons by the Romans. And so there was great resentment against this Egyptian. There was great resentment among the Jewish people against this Egyptian. Now, we have extra biblical verification of this because Josephus, the Jewish historian, he verifies this event. The only difference is Josephus, instead of 4,000 followers, he said he had 30,000 followers the problem with Josephus, and by the way, if you ever want to read good background to the New Testament, Josephus' history is an interesting book to read. And don't we all read a little Josephus every day, right? No, of course not. But there are many places we can get some background to our Bibles through Josephus. Well, he, he claimed that the number was 30,000. The problem with, uh, with Josephus is that he often inflated his numbers all throughout his history. He does that same thing. He inflates the numbers. Uh, Luke's 4,000 is more like it. So this Roman commander um, mistakes Paul for this Egyptian. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no ordinary uh, a uh, citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Now, what Luke is trying to show here, and this is important, and please don't miss this point. This is one of the most important points we will talk about today in this passage. And that is this, what Luke wants us to see is that Paul was not a revolutionary. Paul was not a political revolutionary. Luke wants us to see that in his account in Acts. Luke is highlighting, now please listen to this. Luke is highlighting the non-political nature of Christianity. Are you surprised to know that Christianity is non-political? It doesn't seem that way today, does it? It hasn't seemed that way since the 1970s. I was around then. And since 19, about the middle of the 1970s up until today, it must break God's heart to see Christians trusting more in politics than in Him. what luke is trying to show here is that paul was not a revolutionary luke was highlighting rather the non-political nature of christianity now that was in contrast that was in contrast to other messianic movements of the day the roman mindset could only conceive that political intrigue could cause this kind of a riot. They thought it has to be political uh, uh, intrigue. What Luke is trying to show you and to show me is that the Word of God, the Gospel, is the real power, and it's more powerful than political power. The Word of God is the real power. It has the power to change people's lives. It has the power to change their hearts. The gospel is not political. It does its work by a coup in man's heart, not a political coup. Can I say that again? The gospel is not political, and it doesn't work by a coup in man's heart. It works, rather, by a coup in a man's heart, not a political coup. Paul was a revolutionary, but not in the way the Romans thought. Paul was a revolutionary, but not in the way the Romans thought. Paul was a revolutionary who topples, not governments, but ego and self and sin. That happens to everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Selfishness is toppled, sin is toppled ego is toppled self is toppled because the Word of God is powerful and it's powerful to change people's lives and Paul is the prime example of that and that's why a great part of what follows is Paul's testimony about coming to faith Paul's testimony about his conversion Paul was a revolutionary who topples not governments, but ego, self, sin, pride, who challenges wrong cultural assumptions. How it must break the heart of God to see Christians chasing political power and forgetting the power of the word of God to change people's lives. Well... The Gospel, the Word of God is the real power. Do you know that? Come on, come on. You've seen the Word of God work in your life? You've seen the Word of God work in your life? You know that it's powerful? I've seen the Word of God work in my life. I've seen it change my thinking from wrong things to right things. The Word of God is powerful. And, And we overlook it. We overlook it. Now, I like to buy used books. If, uh, if Kathy and I are in a city that has a half price books, we are going to visit it. I, I know that today you don't have to get out of your chair. You don't have to get in your car. You don't have to drive to another city. I know that. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Christian Book. You can go to... All kinds of websites that have used books, but there's nothing like standing there at that shelf looking at used books. And the other day I pulled one off my shelf because I wanted to see how Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, how he translated uh, or paraphrased a particular passage of the Word of God. I wanted to get his sense of, of how it should be translated. And as I opened this Bible... I saw two things. Number one, the half price book sticker. Number two, an inscription in the book. Now, it always makes me sad to buy a used book and find an inscription in it. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody took the time to buy that gift, that book, as a gift for somebody else, And they struggled, if they're like me at all, they probably struggled for an hour trying to figure out the inscription and they wanted to get the words just right. They wanted to get the sentiment just right to put the inscription in the book. Never thinking that just a few years later that book would wind up on a bookshelf at half price books. This was the inscription That I saw in this book it was given to a person named Skeeter don't know whether Skeeter is male or female by a gentleman whom I won't mention his name the date was June 2015 and the inscription said this and I can just see this person who gave the book writing these words May God's Word contained in this Bible inspire you to follow Jesus with passion. This Bible has transformed me. My prayer is the same for you. What a great inscription, isn't it? Why do I share that with you? I share that with you because this person who gave this Bible to this other person named Skeeter knew the power of the Word of God because they knew that the power of the word of God had transformed their lives. Do we know that? Do we know how powerful the word of God? Do we know how it can change our lives? I wonder what ever happened to Skeeter. Don't you wonder that? Does Skeeter ever read the Bible? Does Skeeter come to faith? Will we see Skeeter in heaven? I know those are weird questions. I I agree to being weird. I hope we'll see Skeeter in heaven. I hope we will. Well, the power of the Word of God, the gospel, the Word of God changes people's lives. Well, verse forty. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood in the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he spoke to them in Aramaic. Now, a couple of things I skipped over a little bit. Uh, uh, What Paul is trying to show in his testimony about his citizenship, his life, his language, uh, he's showing, first of all, that he's a Jew who had a right to be in the temple. He's a Jew who had a right to be in the temple. As a citizen of Tarsus, it's probably where he learned Greek. Uh, it was a great city, a city with a great reputation and a well uh, thought of city in the Roman Empire of that day. And it was, had one of the finest Greek universities. In verse 40, we read that having received the commander's permission, Paul stood in the steps and motioned to the crowd and he spoke to them in Aramaic. Now, Why Aramaic? Paul could speak Greek, we already know that, because the commander said, you speak Greek, not Egyptian. Now we find out that Paul not only speaks Greek, but he speaks Aramaic. Now why is that important? Well, Aramaic is the common language of Palestine, the common language of Palestinian Jews. It was used throughout the Middle East and Western Asia at this time. See Jews of that day in Palestine were more likely to speak Aramaic than they were to speak Hebrew. Aramaic was the common language of the day. Paul is addressing them in the common language of the day and it's the reason they get quiet. I want you to notice what Paul's doing here in talking about his background and talking about and talking to them in Aramaic he is finding common ground with them that's a great we talked about this principle before when we are sharing our faith in Jesus Christ with others around us we need to reach out to them on common ground we'll talk more about that in just a moment but we need to reach out to them and call common ground Well, one writer said, the calm self-control of Paul in the presence of this mob is amazing. It was a strange request and a daring one to wish to speak to this mob, howling for Paul's blood. Most men would have feared to speak, but not so Paul. And so he finds common ground. He talks about the fact that he was... Pharisee his background was in the Pharisees Uh, it was uh, the Pharisees came into existence during the Maccabean times which was about 200 BC 200 years before the coming of Christ and they came into existence in an effort to restore the nation to the observance of the Mosaic law Paul's address brothers and fathers listen now to my defense When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And then he shows the proof of his zealousness in verses 4 and 5 when he talks about how he persecuted the followers of the way, how he persecuted Christianity. Gamaliel was a beloved and esteemed rabbi. He was considered one of the greatest Pharisees of all time. I guess we call him the goat of Pharisees. The goat of Pharisees. Okay. Well, Paul presents his defense. Paul presents his defense. The word defense in verse 1 is the word apologia from which we get our word apology. A defense, an apology, apologetics is the study of the defense of Christianity. Apologetics is the study of the defense of Christianity. Paul makes his defense before them he gives his testimony before them his testimony falls in three parts we've just read the first part verses 1 to 5 before his conversion there is the before in his life and then the second part of his testimony is verses 6 to 16 there is is his conversion that is the how and then verses 17 to 21 is the after, his commissioning by God. So we have in Paul's testimony the before, the how, and the after. Most of us, especially those of us who came to faith in Jesus Christ as adults, we have a before, a how, and an after. We know what we were like before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We know how God called us to Himself, and we put our trust in Jesus, and we know what we have been like since coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is sharing here. He's sharing the before of his salvation, the how of his salvation, the after of his salvation, the commissioning by God. that is something that you and i should be sure that we have prepared that we are prepared that if god gives us the opportunity to speak to somebody about our faith in jesus christ we are ready with the before how and after we are ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us in your bulletin you have 1 peter chapter 3 verses 13 to 16 from the New Living Translation, where Peter said this, Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't be afraid and don't worry. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if you are asked... Now, you know, that's an important point. If you are asked. That is, when somebody gives you an opening, when somebody asks you, why do you live like that? Why do you believe in God? Why? When somebody asks you. Now, too many of us try to make Christians feel guilty. And we say, if you don't buttonhole every person around you, you're not doing your job as a Christian. Well, Peter here said, if you are asked, he didn't say tap the shoulder of every person around you. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, don't go out of here saying, Joe said I don't have to share my faith. Joe didn't say that. I didn't say that. What I'm saying is be especially sensitive to when God opens the door. So many times we're trying to kick the door down with, I think, disastrous results. Well, back to Peter. If you're, and if you're asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. So my question is, are you ready? Am I ready? Well, let me read one more thing he said, because I don't want to divorce this from the rest. But you must do this in a gentle and respectful way. Peter must have been really concerned about that because he talks about that later. In 2 Peter, do it in a respectful way. See, we need to be ready. We need to be ready with the before, the, the, the how, and the after. Can I I share with you a testimony? I, I don't even know where I found this, to be honest with you, but it's Johnny Cash's testimony. Now, wouldn't you like to hear Johnny Cash's testimony? This is his testimony, and what I like about it is how succinct it is and how clearly we see the before, the how, and the after. Now, those of you who have like a timer, well, you all have a timer on your on your uh, phone right i'm going to start reading this time this and see how long this takes see we have the idea that that we have to have a a half hour testimony or 45 minute testimony and bring people to tears no this is his testimony somebody somebody time it a few years ago i was hooked on drugs i dreaded to wake up in the morning there was no peace joy Happiness in my life. Then one day in my helplessness, I turn my life completely over to God. Now I can't wait to get up in the morning and study my Bible. Sometimes the words out of the Scriptures leap into my heart. This does not mean that all my problems have been solved or that I have reached any state of perfection. However, my life has been turned around. I've been born again. Stop the watch. Clock, phone, how many... 30, 32.62 seconds. Do you think you can do a 32 second testimony? Is that too daunting for us? 32 seconds! I gotta speak for 32 seconds. My goodness, you've already spoken about the weather for more than 32 seconds today. 32 seconds. And he covered everything. Did you notice the before? A few years ago, I was hooked on drugs. I dreaded to wake up in the morning. There was no joy, peace, or happiness in my life. That's the before. Did you see the how? Then one day in my helplessness, I turned my life completely over to God. Did you see the after? Now I can't wait to get up in the morning and study my Bible. Sometimes the words out of the scriptures leap into my heart. This does not mean that all my problems. Here's the reality, folks. It doesn't mean that all my problems have been solved or that I've reached any state of perfection. However, my life has been turned around. I've been born again. 32 plus seconds. We can do that, folks. We can do it. We can prepare a testimony like that and be ready. Uh, Years ago, it was all the rage to do a Navigators 2-7 series. Anybody... Never mind. I won't ask that. We got to get you to the brisket. Years ago, a lot of us did navigators two seven groups. I did a number of men's navigators two seven groups, and uh, it was one of the probably one of the things as I look back on all the all of the years of my ministry that was most uh, enjoyable to me and most fruitful for the men of the church. Uh, two things that stand out. Navigators 27. the original program, took two years to go through and six books. And it was fantastic. But two of the things that were always a standout among the men that we did the groups with, one was doing a half day in prayer. That was always an amazing experience, doing a half day in prayer. The second was writing and giving our testimony the before, the how, the after and I'll never forget one of the one of the men in one of the groups, the doctor uh, we, our group picked, a, I believe it was a Thursday night, it doesn't matter I don't, it doesn't matter what night it was to spend about three or four hours together writing our testimony so we could get it down to 30 seconds. And uh, then one by one, as they were ready, had, had like a draft ready, they would come in and, and we would sit down together and they would, they would read me the draft. I'll never forget this one man, a doctor, came in and he could not get through his testimony without great tears. Jesus meant so much to him. Jesus meant so much to him. And what God had done in his life meant so much to him. And I will never forget that moment. So what's your story? What's your before and your after? Let me just say one more thing and we will be finished I mentioned common ground, I don't want to leave that hanging in the air. What do I mean by common ground? I mean when you're seeking to share your testimony, share your faith with those around you, look for those things that are common between you. For instance, if you are both married, that's a commonality. You, you know that that person wants a good marriage. No one goes into marriage hoping it'll fail. Boy, I wish this marriage would fail. No, they want a good marriage. They want a good marriage. So the non-Christians around you, just because they're non-Christians doesn't mean they don't care about their marriage. If they have children and you have children, there's a commonality there. Non-Christians want their kids to be to succeed just as much as you want your kids to succeed. There's common ground there. Ethnicity is a common ground. Work is a common ground. Seek to establish common ground with the person or persons that we are witnessing to. So let's draw it to a close. We'll have our closing song and eat. Look for common ground with the unbelievers in your family, the unbelievers around you. And take some time this week to write a 32 point, whatever that was, 32 point plus Testimony, with your before, how, and after. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Paul's testimony. Thank you for his courage. With a crowd wanting to take off his head, he didn't take off. He didn't leave. He didn't hide. He came back and he boldly proclaimed the truth of the gospel. May we follow in his steps. In Jesus' name.